Everybody's telling us we're fine, but we sure aren't feeling fine. On today's episode, we're having a very important discussion about all things COVID. We believe it is true that most people who get COVID will probably have a mild case and recover. However, now is the time to prepare just in case your case is more than mild, and you'll certainly see why after listening to our COVID stories. Welcome to the Fortify Podcast. Here, four moms with 38 kids combined and over 120 years of homeschooling experience combined share resources and life stories that have fortified them and will hopefully fortify you as well. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Fortify Podcast. It's been a while since we released an episode, and the reason for that is because I contracted COVID, and I've been walking through that, which is the subject of today's podcast. Please note also that my voice is not quite back to normal yet. In today's episode, my friend Rachel and I share a walk with COVID, me for the last month, Rachel for the last four months. We really both feel that other people might be able to be better prepared after listening to this podcast if they or their family members were to come down with more than just a mild case. I will say from the onset that Rachel and I believe this statistics that over 80%, and maybe it's even more than that, uh, most people will either not get the disease or have a mild case, and of course, most will recover. We both were certainly prepared for the reality that our families would likely be exposed to the virus and possibly contract it. However, what we were not expecting was given how healthy we were, that we would have any problems, nor did we give any thought to the possible medical advice we would receive. And that's what our stories are about today. I'm going to start with my timeline and then Rachel will give hers. It's interesting to note that I did not know Rachel had COVID up until about a week ago. Her husband had been working on our air conditioning unit, and he'd called me to update me on some parts and when he'd be over, but he'd also just been to Pony Club with his kids and heard somebody there had said that I had had COVID. When Rachel and I got together and talked about our stories, it was remarkable how similar they were, and that is why we want to share them with you today. One other note before I start on my timeline is that both Rachel and I want to share our story so that people could be prepared, but what we don't want is for people to become paranoid. So if they get a few symptoms, they think they're going to end up with heart and lung damage. That's not what we want to do. We don't want to move in that direction, but we do think there's some value in being prepared with information that might be helpful. So please, in all of this, keep things in balance. Don't be paranoid but do be prepared. So in starting with my timeline, I think it was around, it was around August 20th, it was a Thursday that I first started feeling some general malaise. And I think I should point out that even at almost 60, I tend to move at about 110 miles an hour. And I don't, I don't say that to say, oh, look at me or anything. No, that's just the way I've always been. It's just my nature. People talk about wishing they had the energy of a two-year-old. I I feel like I've always had that kind of energy. But I also think that because of that, I can get myself into trouble if I'm not balanced. And right before I got sick, it was about, oh, maybe a month or so before that, it would have been more than that, I started this podcast. I said, oh, I want to do a podcast. And so I wanted to learn everything, and you know, I had to learn all kinds of 
of editing and just everything was new. And so um, it was great and I love learning all kinds of new things, but that also, I was very intense <laughs> and I stayed up way too late. I think during this time period, I was getting like four or five hours of sleep a night. And it's not that I, I don't even get tired. It's just, you know, it's just, I want to do this. I want to do this. People are like, oh, aren't you tired? My kids are like, aren't you tired? I'm like, oh, you know, that's just how I run. And, but I do remember talking to Donna because I do some life coaching with Donna, which I'm going to be doing a future episode here with her because she's got some really great stuff. But anyway, I was talking with her and because and, I'm like, I got to work on getting to bed earlier. And she said, well, what would motivate you to do that? And I said, well, if there's one thing, you know, I have not been sick in years, but if there's one thing that's, I think that's going to get me sick is if, if I keep going, you know, at this level. So I, I do think that I got myself into trouble because I'm, I'm huge on supplements and vitamins. I've been preaching vitamin D3, K2 for years. It's my kids have taken it. I don't know, a great portion of their life. And, you know, we're taking the vitamin C and the zinc and the quercetin and all this stuff. I mean, my kids have worked they work in very high traffic jobs, lots of people. And before they'd walk out the door, I'm like, did you take your vitamin C? Did you take your vitamin D? So we weren't short on any of that. And again, none of my kids I, got sick. I mean, they, they had some congestion. I think one of my daughters had a bit of a cough. Um, we are going to test for antibodies, although whether how that test is, um, you know, interpreted is something we're going to talk about later here in the podcast but I still think the tests are are good for you know information an information marker okay we may find out that you know something different but I, I do think it's worth worth taking the time to do it so at any rate um just that's just as a backdrop for anybody who's listening and think oh well maybe they weren't taking their vitamins or maybe no we we're all right there that's just been a part of our life so uh, you know get this general malaise um congestion um i think the loss of taste and smell was pretty early which uh, seems to be a, a, a real um common factor in all of this um, the other thing I remember, and Rachel will talk about this and I'll talk about it later as well, is this feeling of in your chest, it's kind of full, at least just initially, and you have this feeling of your heart kind of pumping um, in your chest or in your throat. Uh, that's the best way I can describe it, but it wasn't that, that pronounced at the beginning. And by Sunday, I thought I was getting better. But by Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I couldn't barely get out of bed. And um, just no, no energy. Uh, and just, it, it's not like you can't breathe, or at least I think um, Rachel and I had the similar experience. It's just, I mean, I could get a breath in and out. You just... Um, it, you just feel like some somebody's laying on your chest. Something's that elephant sitting on your chest. So um, at first I was hesitant to go in to get tested because somebody might say, well, why don't you get tested at the very beginning? Well, my the symptoms weren't super bad at the very beginning. But also, you know, you hear a lot of people with false uh, positives or that 
previous weekend, a friend of mine's parents had gone in to get tested. They checked in. Um, they waited. Um, they waited a significant amount of time and just thought, okay, we're just leaving. This is going to take too long. And But then a couple hours later, they get a phone call saying they tested positive. So you're just like, you know... <laughs> what do we do with these tests, these tests that we need, but people don't trust. And so it's just very messy. It's just very, very messy. So, but I did finally decide to to go in. I had read something about um, be careful on day five because you can think you're getting better, but then, you know, you can end up with pneumonia. So on Friday, I thought I really just am going to go get tested. I mean, I, I knew I already had it, but I just wanted to make sure my lungs were clear and all of that. So um, I actually called my doctor that Friday, did not realize because I was, I'm a new patient to her. I think I've seen, I'd seen her once before and, um, didn't realize she didn't have office hours. They told me to go to their clinic. And, um, so I did that and I waited in my car for three hours. And it's interesting because as I was driving over there, I actually pulled over and was thinking, I don't know if I can make it. So I sat and waited three hours, and when I walked in, I really couldn't even talk that well, so I wrote out on my phone, hey, I think I have COVID, here are my symptoms, and I just showed her my phone. And then I, you know, went in, and they tested me, They and I was positive. And um, I'm my vitals must have looked fine, um, and you're going to find the same story with Rachel, like, Oh, your lungs were, are clear and maybe our oxygen levels are fine. So like we looked okay or I looked, I guess, reasonable, even though I felt like I couldn't get words out and was just incredibly tired. Um, and again, had that sense of somebody sitting on my chest. So they gave me some um, Zithromax and a prescription for some cough medicine, which I didn't really have a cough, so I didn't take. But I went on my way um, that night. I took the Zipthromax and I just thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to take it. I'm just going to do what they're telling me to do. And, you know, I'll be better in a few days. You know, that's what you keep thinking. You're going to be better in a few days. And I wanted to really believe I was getting better throughout the week. And on Friday, I contacted the director at the place where I was seen. And I said, I really think a steroid would help me. I had, I had been doing a ton of research on this. And um, I'm, I'm going to talk about that later because I'm, I'm sure the worst thing is, you know, to a doctor is, oh, I've been doing research on the internet. But at any rate, I, I really felt like a steroid could help me. And he said, no, that's just a progression of the disease. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know. So then Saturday, I, that night, I thought, I'm, I'm going to take you know, some of my daughter's albuterol, she rarely needs it, maybe once or twice a year. But I thought, well, maybe that'll help. And at first I thought, yeah, maybe. And but the Saturday, it was like, no, you know, just, I just was not doing well. I mean, I, I feel like I was getting worse. And then I started having chest pains and, you know, still that, that fullness of chest in my chest. The other thing went early on, um, I remember in the beginning where you, you can almost feel disoriented, you know. But anyway, so, and I think that Friday night, a friend of mine let me use her oxygen meter, the one, the, what you put on your finger. And, um, and it's funny, Rachel did the same thing um, because we thought, okay, at least if our oxygen levels look good, we're okay. 
you know, we're, we're just okay. And I think mine at times were like 95, 96. Um, but then, you know, they got up to 98 or so. And, and so you're just thinking, okay, even if I don't feel like I can't breathe, I, I must be getting oxygen. So then on Sunday, I, this would have been on the 6th, I, throughout the day, I'm just like, mm, these chest pains, there's just not something right. So I called that same clinic. Well, actually, I called my, my doctor. It's a Sunday, I know, but I just thought I'd call the doctor on call. And you, first you get the nurse. So because the nurse decides who gets to the doctor. And she just said, you know, you should really be seen. Go back to the clinic. So I called the clinic and they were just like, oh, let's do a telehealth. You know, we do it over the telephone. And um, so we did. And I, I asked her if I could possibly get, you know, a steroid because based on the research and it, it was good research. I'll, I'll put the notes in the um, in the in the show notes. I'll put the links in the show notes. Um, and she just said, you know, this is probably not COVID anymore. Uh, maybe it was allergies and she would not give me a prescription for the steroid, but she would give me a prescription for al- al- albuterol, which again, I said didn't work, and for Pepsid AC. I, and I just thought, okay, um, that's interesting um, that Pepsid AC might be helpful, you know, or it might be gas. So anyway, I just got off the phone and I headed up to Walmart because I was no, you know, I was no longer contagious apparently. And I, you know, this wasn't COVID and I'm driving home and I'm like, there is something wrong with me. I, I have to be seen. And you know, you don't want to walk into the emergency room because uh, you know, obviously the cost, but if you, if you, if I didn't feel like I was like going to die, but I just knew something was wrong. And then I knew that there was another clinic with another hospital that was still open. And so I went there and I checked in, told them all my symptoms, you know, still no taste, no smell, you know, still congested, still feeling this fullness in my chest. And, um, you know, told that to the receptionist, went in, told that to the nurse, the doctor comes in and I told him, you know, what was going on. And he was pretty adamant with his no about saying, no, I, I, I'm not going to give you a prescription for the steroid uh, because in his mind, science-based medicine said it wouldn't help. But again, I'll, I'll link the studies. There are plenty, plenty of studies. In, in fact, JAMA came out um, with a whole bunch of studies in regards to this. Um, anyway, so I just looked at him and I said, Doctor, I have a story I'd like to tell you. I said, several years ago, I was at this hospital with my daughter who was having nonstop seizures. No one here could get them to stop, so we were transferred to the Cleveland Clinic, which is the top pediatric epilepsy in in the country, some would say even the world. And the staff there was all very helpful, and I knew everybody was trying to do what they could, but they couldn't get the seizures to stop. Once I got home with Autumn still seizing, I couldn't find anybody here willing to work with me because uh, I wanted to start her on the ketogenic diet. I was just told that the doctors would find some combination of drugs to control the seizures. And um, I, I had a doctor told me that people were going to think I was crazy, you know, if I was going to be so adamant about this. You know, so I had to go it alone. 
And thank goodness I at least had a doctor who was willing to run the necessary labs for Autumn that she would need on the diet. And as it turned out, we had great success with Autumn, working with a dietitian from Canada and another committed mother, Teresa, who brought her son back to health with the diet. Just incredible, incredible story. Today, Autumn is seizure-free. She is on no meds, and she now eats whatever she wants to eat. And because of my work and Autumn's success, well, it's not just my work, everybody, you know, all the people who helped me, and Autumn's success, this hospital took note and had Beth Zupak Kenya from the Charlie Foundation come out and teach the staff about the diet. So I said, doctor, right now I'm feeling like I'm stuck, like I did then, and no one's willing to help me. I would really like to try a prescription for the methylprednisone. And he said to me, well, that if I was demanding it, he would prescribe it, not because he thought it would help me, but because he did not think it would hurt me. And I said, okay, fair enough. That's, I can accept that offer. When I was walking out of the exam room, the nurse handed me my paperwork and reminded me that if I ever felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest, that I should go to the ER immediately. <laughs> and I just... I looked at her like incredulously. It was just like, I just told you I've been that way for 17 days. And she looked at me and she's like, oh, do you feel that way now? And I said, yes. And then I walked out the door. The other thing I'd like to note is sometime during that week, I had contacted our old physician group. Our physician had retired, but I had contacted him because I thought, I would like to get the kids tested for antibodies. Um, they had some symptoms, maybe. I mean, the tired, kind of a runny nose. I don't think anybody ran a fever. One of my daughters had a cough. And I just thought it would be good to know if they had the antibodies, you know, for the future. And I wanted, you know, for me to test because, you know, you hear how people were testing and then not testing. And I thought this would be really good information to know. So I contacted that old group that we had and uh, talked to one of the doctors there and his response to me was kind of surprising he said well we don't do tests just to satisfy the curiosity of people and I thought well that's interesting and you know in science you think in medicine you know curiosity you want to find things out especially with a new disease and you know he went on to say you know something about, you know, people don't even know, really know how to read those tests. And okay, I just, I just thought there's, there's no point, you know, I thanked him for calling me back. And, you know, perhaps all of that is true. Um, I thought I had a valid reason for requesting the test. But um, anyway, I did find another place uh, where I could get tested. And we are waiting those results now. And it's interesting, because Rachel had this same um, answer from some of the physicians that she said when she wanted to get tested for antibodies. So at any rate, I left that physician's group that Sunday night, went straight over to Walgreens, uh, took a dose before going to bed, and felt remarkably better already in the morning. Just continued on over the next couple of days, just feeling very much better, did not have the chest pain. And now I know you put anybody on steroids and, and they're going to feel better um, just in general. Uh, but whatever was going on certainly was alleviated by the dose that I was taking. Um, 
I've gone off at the time that I'm speaking now. I've been off it for two days. Um, hopefully, we'll continue to progress. Um, I think I might have to call my doctor about a couple things, but all the symptoms that I started with, some of those, I, you know, I still have that congestion in the head. Most of the fullness in the chest is gone. It, it's still there, um, but it's not anywhere near like it was. Okay, so now Rachel's going to tell her story. Her and I are sitting here at her kitchen table, and I'm just so grateful for you being willing to share your story. So if you would just say, you know, how did it start and where are you at today? Okay, first of all, I'm really happy to tell my story for everyone to hear, and maybe some people can relate to this. And if it helps anybody, then I'm so happy to tell the story. So first of all, um, it started back in March, uh, late March, I noticed I wasn't feeling well. Um, I would be fatigued, slightly short of breath. My joints started aching. And I would go out to help my children um, with some of their chores. And I would have to say, I'm so sorry. I need to go in. I'm out of breath. I just can't breathe. And I would go in the house and I would lay my head down and just try to catch my breath. And I just thought, well, I must be sick. It's not that big of a deal. But by that weekend, my joints really started to hurt all my elbows, my knees, my my wrist, and it started getting really bad and by Sunday night it was very intense. It was so intense that it felt like all my muscles were seizing up and they were very tight and I just felt like Honestly, like I was having a child. I've had children natural childbirth, and it really felt like I was having a child. And it was just horrible. But by morning, it started subsiding some. I still could not lay flat. It was very, very painful, but it was starting to go away. So I thought, well, surely this is some sort of a virus. It will go away. A couple days later, I started feeling better. But as soon as the muscle pain stopped, I couldn't breathe. That set in. I could not breathe. And when I say I couldn't breathe, I really just couldn't breathe at all. All I could do was lay on my side and just hope for air. And I went through a few days of this, and I felt like I just I can't take this anymore. I don't know what to do. So I went into the emergency room. Of course, I had to go by myself because that's when COVID first started, and they wouldn't allow anyone in. And... Um, I did not ask to be COVID tested. I just simply went in and said, I can't breathe, I need help. So they did minimal testing, they did a chest x-ray and they said, well, you have pneumonia, so that's why you probably can't breathe very well. And I said, well, my heart is racing, it's really beating out of my chest. And they told me, well, you know, when you're sick, you get very nervous, so your heart beats fast. Well, this wasn't like a normal, your heart's beating fast. This is like a, I can feel every single beat my heart is making, and it feels like it's going to explode. So I said, okay, you know, and the doctor came in, and he said, well, you know, we can't COVID test you because we're only testing hospital personnel. And I thought, well, thanks, but I didn't ask to be COVID tested, and I just really want to breathe, so can you give me something? So they gave me an antibiotic, sent me home, said seven days, you're going to feel much, much better. Well, in seven days, I didn't feel better. As a matter of fact, I wasn't any better at all. And 
I was really stressing out. I would sit up at night and I would think, I'm just going to watch television as long as I possibly can because I don't know if I'm going to wake up in the morning. And it was really horrible. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. My kids were literally serving me. They would bring me breakfast in bed and they would check on me and my three-year-old would lay next to me in bed and just look over at me and smile and hold my hand and it was absolutely absolutely horrendous. And um, my seven days went by and I really, I wasn't better. I wasn't better at all. So um, I decided to go back in and I went in and they told me, well, you your pneumonia is going away, but where it was located, it's definitely not COVID because it, it wasn't in the right spot. So you're just having a little bit of trouble getting over this. There's nothing wrong with you. And they did some blood work and they, you know, they told me I was fine. Well, I wasn't fine. I couldn't breathe. So I felt like, well, I'm, I'm back to square one. And through all of this, I had been contacting my family doctor and saying I'd like to be seen. And they kept wanting to do telehealth visits or they would want me to talk to them over the phone. They did not want to see me. So I ended up calling my doctor again and I said, listen, my, I'm not getting better. I took the antibiotic. I need help. And my heart's beating out of my chest. And they told me, well, we'll set you up for a x-ray scan of your heart and I said okay so I went and did that and they said honey you're fine you're young your heart looks really good and I said okay you know (laughs) what else am I gonna do so um time went by weeks went by and I still just wasn't getting better as a matter of fact I was getting worse and I decided well um I'm gonna go in no I need to back up just a little bit First, um, I I wasn't better, but weeks had went by, and um, I knew I needed help, and I had went over to my brother and my sister-in-law's house, and my sister-in-law said, Rachel, the is doing free antibody testing. Not free. It was $50. You go in, you pay $50, and they let you do an antibody test, and I said, oh, that's great, because I had called my doctor's office and said, I'd like an antibody test. (laughs) And they told me, well, we'll run that by the doctor and she'll call you back. Well, guess what? They did not call me back. So I thought, well, I'll go in. I'll pay $50. I'll pay it all day long. I just need help and I I need a direction to go in. I need to know what's going on. Um, And so I went in and they told me, they did the test and they said, yeah, you have um, COVID antibodies. And I said, okay. And so I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I figured, well, I got, I had COVID. Um, At least I have a starting point. And all this time I had been researching pneumonia. How long does it take to get over pneumonia? You know, all these things. And so in my mind, I had this thought in my head, if if I make it six weeks, surely my lungs are going to be better. Six weeks. Well, six weeks go by and I'm not better. So at this point I know, okay, I have, I had COVID. Six weeks went by. I've been on an antibiotic. My doctor won't see me. The ER doesn't want to see me. What should I do? And then, uh, so I decided I'm going to go into the uh, walk-in respiratory clinic. So I go in there, and they said to me, well, why are you here? Why didn't you go see your doctor? And I said, 
well, I would like to be seen. I want somebody to listen to me breathe. I want them to check my heart rate. I want to be seen. And they said, okay. And I said, well, I went in and I had an antibody test done. And it said I had COVID. And they said, well, that test is no good and it is not true. She said, we need to COVID test you. And I said, well, it's been weeks since I've had COVID. It's not going to show up positive. And she told me, well, we need to test you anyways because we need to know for ourselves. So I agreed to a test that I knew I was going to have to pay for and I knew was going to turn out negative. And sure enough, it turned out negative. And she told me, well, do you wear your mask all day long? And I said, no, I do not wear a mask all day long. And she told me, well, you obviously have allergies, so here's some allergy medicine and sent me on my way. And I was very discouraged and cried a lot. <laughs> and so I went home and I thought, what am I going to do now? And weeks went by more <laughs> and I was pretty desperate. And by this time, I'm a good two months into it, maybe more, I don't remember exactly. But I was in the car and I was feeling very, very low and very, very desperate, and I wasn't breathing well that day. And I remember thinking in my mind, if I can just get home and do a nebulizer, because my daughter has asthma, and I thought, surely I'll just do the nebulizer and I'll feel so much better. And I really, in reality, the nebulizers never helped. But I thought, you know, hey, at least I have the nebulizer. <laughs> so. I was sitting in the car thinking all these things. I had just picked my children up from my brother's house. They had spent the night, and I was driving home, and I got a phone call. And it was a lady, and she was asking me lots and lots of questions. And I was answering the questions, as I always do. But then I realized she's asking me different questions. So instead of giving her the generic answers that I give everyone, I said, who is this? And she said, hey, I'm collecting information from all of the people that have tested positive for COVID antibodies. We're just trying to put links together and maybe figure some things out. And I said, oh, I said, well, if you're going to listen to me, I'm going to tell you my whole story because no one listens. And she sat and she listened to everything I had to say. And she said, I am so sorry you had to go through all that. And she said, you come in and I am going to see you myself. And I thought, thank you, Lord. Praise God. Finally, somebody will at least try. I thought, even if she can't help me, she's at least trying. So I went in and I saw her. And she ordered lots of testing to be done, lots of blood work. She ordered a CT scan to check my lungs. And what she found out was I did have spots on my lungs indicating a very severe illness, pointing at COVID, and um, just some things in uh, my blood work, you know, low vitamins, this and that. Well, my doctors could have told me that. They didn't do any of those things, but she did, and I was so thankful for her. And she said, I don't know why, but for some reason, because of your illness, you now have asthma and let's get you started on some medicine. She said, I'm gonna attack this aggressively and then we'll back off of whatever you don't need. But what our goal is, let's hit it hard and, and, and not mess around. Let's try to fix you right now. And so she put me on a steroid that helped a little. She put me on another steroid, it helped a little. And now I'm on 
various medicines so that each day I can breathe and function and take care of my family instead of them taking care of me. And that's a huge deal because I would drive down the road with my husband in the car and I would look out and I would see people running down the road or walking on the street and I would feel so jealous because I thought, I want to breathe. We go through each day and you can breathe on your own and you don't think a single thing about it. Trust me, I've been there, but now I'm on the other side of it and I know. So, and just an encouragement to everybody out there that maybe is going through this or know somebody else because there is hope and hopefully you can find it. One thing I want to add, because I heard Rachel mention it in her story, how she just felt her heart was racing and just pounding and you can even feel it in your throat. I remember just thinking that same exact thing. And I just wanted to mention that because again, it was so similar. Okay, now that we've shared our stories, let's back up and talk about the virus itself. This information is gonna be old hat for many of you, but I'm just gonna review it for anyone who may not be aware of this information. SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19. SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. The CO is for Corona, V is for virus, and two is basically the version. The first recognition of SARS-CoV was back in 2002-2003. COVID-19 is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2. And so the CO there stands for Corona, the VI for virus, the D for disease, and 19 is the year that it came into existence. Now, if or when your body gets exposed to the SARS-CoV-2, your body then launches an immune response to that virus. And one of the things that our body does is it can release cytokines, which are small proteins that send out signals that allow different immune cells to talk to each other and tell each other what to do. Okay, so we all have these in our body. Now, there are both pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory cytokines. Pro-inflammatory ones are the ones that, I like the way this article put it, uh, that call upon the soldiers of the immune system, the natural killer cells and T cells, when they're needed to combat an invader. So it's like, oh, let's get out there. You know, we need to fight this. And one of the pro-inflammatory cytokines that has been of particular interest is IL-6 because of the properties it has to charge up the immune system. Those are the ones, later I'll talk about a um, drug that's used to um, inhibit that response. But then you have anti-inflammatory cytokines such as the IL-4 and IL-10. And these are released when the body's almost done fighting and the invader says, okay, your, your job is to send out signals that say things are going well, let's, let's lay low, let's, let's draw back. So what happens with COVID-19, with the COVID-19 infection, is the immune system starts responding to the virus as it normally would, but in some patients, something goes wrong, and you have this storm, this cytokine, cytokine storm that just doesn't turn off. So instead of helping the host cope with the infection, the cytokines can cause damage to the tissue, such as breaking down the protective lining of the lung in the blood vessels. And when the lining of the blood vessels in the airway is diminished, fluids and proteins seep out of the blood vessels and fill the 
alveoli, the tiny air sacs in the lungs. And then this disrupts ox the oxygen exchange and causes people to experience that shortness of breath. Um, they no longer have enough oxygen in the blood coming through. And because, they're, um, because their sacs are filled with fluids. Another issue that's been suggested is that the cytokine storm may cause endothelia disease and endothelia dysfunction is a type of non-obstructive coronary artery disease in which there's no heart artery blockage but the large blood vessels on the heart surface constrict so they narrow instead of dilate. And this may play a role in why months after people have had COVID they're still struggling with heart issues and being diagnosed with myocarditis. Uh, myocarditis affects how the heart pumps blood and triggers rapid or abnormal heart rhythms. I think it was maybe last month that a Florida State basketball player died from a heart attack after he had just recovered from the coronavirus. Um, and an Ohio State University cardiologist found that between 10 and 13 percent of the university athletes who had recovered from COVID now have myocarditis or pericarditis. And there's also been concern of COVID patients developing blood clots and small vessels in the legs, lugs, and cerebral arteries. I remember reading the blood clot reports back, I think in late March, maybe it was April. Uh, there was a friend of mine who died in April, and I don't know that she was ever tested for COVID, but um, she died of a blood clot in her lung. So I, I'm not suggesting that I know for a fact that there's any connection there, but I just remember reading the reports on the issue of blood clots and how some patients were having blood clotting issues. One thing I have to say that I think is interesting is that when both Rachel and I would go in, you know, people checking our hearts and our oxygen, everybody's telling us we're fine. Um, everything's looking good. So then what is the issue? Is, is there something underlying? And honestly, I, I don't know how people get tested um, for, you know, some of these heart issues that I'm talking about. So, you know, that might be a question I be maybe taking to my doctor. But I just think it's so interesting that we both had this phenomena, if you will, that everybody's telling us we're fine, but we sure aren't feeling fine. By that, I mean, you know, I'm into this. I'm there at the doctor's office. I'm having chest pain. I'm, you know having all of the stuff in my chest and I'm being told I'm fine. What would have happened? I mean, we won't know, you know, what would have happened had I not gotten that steroid. Um, would I have just gotten worse and worse like Rachel? And what if Rachel would have gotten that intervention earlier, three, you know, three months earlier? And so these are the questions that you need to be talking to your doctor about. You need to see where they're at with things. And I don't, I don't have the answers. We don't have the answers, but, but it just seems like there's something to be looked at here. So before I begin with my next comments, I just want to be really careful in how one might perceive my comments. Now, I am clearly not a medically trained professional, and I would not 
want anybody to think, oh, Anne, you think you know more than these scientists from around the world. No, 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 <laughs> I don't. But what I do think is that there are many different views on what's going on uh, with the virus and what the best course of action to take. If you look at any entity, say you look at you know how an economy is run, obviously there are different views on the best way of how an economy should run, how a country should run. Uh, you have good people who have different views and obviously those will lead to different outcomes. And I don't think medicine, the area of medicine, is any different. And specifically, when I walked through what I walked through with Autumn, I, I was dealing with the best doctors in the world. I mean, the Cleveland Clinic is known to be one of the best epileptic units in the world. Um, and they couldn't help Autumn. So it, it wasn't that I knew more than those doctors. I mean, that, that was, that's silly. But what I did is I went and searched other avenues and then was blessed to find people who knew what they were doing in those fields so that they could help me. Like, I know this is the direction I want to go, but I need this person's help with this ex expertise that believes this also. So it's, it's more of just a difference of opinion. And it's not that you need to know you ha you, that you have to have the expertise that these people do have, but you need to find those people that might agree with the way that um, move in the direction that you would want to go. And so that's where I'm trying to go here. Uh, I'm certainly not trying to present like, oh, I know more than these doctors. No, these, these are my questions. And it, it would be my preference to, to, you know, work with a doctor that could help walk through these questions. So that is where uh, I'm coming from with this next segment that we're going to talk about. One other thing that I think is important to remember is people say, oh, well, this is what the science says. Well, science doesn't say anything. It's the scientists who interpret that data through their biases or their worldview. And so we can never just say, well, this is what the science says. And, and we have to be mindful of that. And the fact people will say, oh, the science is settled. Well, I don't know how science could ever be settled because obviously things can change, information can change, circumstances can change. But at any rate, my point there is that um, the reason, uh, I guess the reason science isn't settled is because scientists interpret data differently. So what the basic research in all of this is showing from you know, the scientists and the doctors is that the feeling is, at least at this point, is that if you can control that cytokine storm, then you can get a better outcome for patients. And certain drugs are used for that, uh, both the antiviral and anti-inflammatory drugs, such as tocilizumab, uh, hydroxychloroquine, which is, seems to just be the big political word, <laughs> word. You can't really say that without getting involved in politics somehow. Uh, 
remdesivir, and of course the corticosteroids. And so each one of these, if you were to Google any one of those and different studies and, you know, you could uh, get, you know, headlines on how they benefited, how people have benefited and, you know, the better outcomes. And so it would be really helpful right now if there were a physician, uh, I suppose, of different viewpoints <laughs> sitting here next to, to me. So the questions could be asked, but there's not. But the thing is, is that most of these studies are all done. They wait until the patient is in ICU ready to be put on a ventilator before these get used. You know, your initial thought is, why would you wait so long? Why not intervene sooner? And from my understanding is, is that they want the immune system to go through its natural course of action. And, you know, Hopefully, the vi it's doing its own thing and regulating, and the cytokines are supposed to doing what they're supposed to do, um, and the virus will then head out the door. But again, when that doesn't happen, then you have these interventions. But so they don't want to give them these medications too early to prevent that from happening. Well, my first thought is, well, could you possibly alleviate some of these long-term effects if you intervened? earlier. Now, for whatever reason, there is the feeling like for at least some doctors that no, you just don't want to do that. And I, I believe there's other issues as well where they feel that it can cause a secondary infection and, and these other things. But you still got to wonder why they're waiting so late. Like if you look at me, I'm, you know, here I was at like day 17 and <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm getting worse and I'm having heart pains and I get told, go take Pepsi AC. That just doesn't seem logical to me, you know, without having the benefit of, you know, doctors here. And, you know, you'd think, well, maybe they should have taken some blood tests for some biomarkers, you know, take a scan of the lungs, something. And I guess... The reason we wanted to do this podcast is to let people know it's important that you have a discussion with your doctor. If you have yet to have COVID, and well, hopefully you won't, I, we think it's important that you talk to your doctor ahead of time and say, okay, here, what are all my options? You know, I've heard that this drug can be used here and this can be used here, and what doctor is your approach to treating this? Now, I don't know this for a fact, but my hypothesis is, is that the reason I could not get, you know, that I did, it was like pulling teeth to try to get a prescription was because I'm assuming the doctors or the, the hospitals have protocols, the clinics have protocols, the doctors have to follow those because if they don't and something goes wrong, well, then somebody's going to get sued. And so, okay, I mean, that could just be the case. I mean, it's sad if that's where we've come down to, but, you know, everything's, everything's a money game, and, but that's the reality of the world we live in. So instead of doctors looking at each patient individually, they have to just do, you know, whatever their protocol is, and that's it. Um, and again, that's a hypothesis. I don't know that that's absolute fact, but that seems to be the general vibe that I'm getting. 
And so it, it's important for you to know now what is your doctor's response going to be and at what point will they intervene? You don't want to be finding out where your doctor stands on these issues when you're in the middle of distress. So uh, again, if you're able to and you have the ability to talk to your doctor beforehand, I would certainly recommend that you do that. So then I think the final issue, and it's something that I think we'll probably talk about more of in the future, is this issue of medical health freedom. As myself, as a patient, do I have the right, do I have the freedom to make health choices for myself based on the information I find to be um, in my best interest. So if, if I would say, okay, I would like to try this, that I don't have to fight my way to do that. And I don't know, maybe we need to contact Jim Banks or Todd Young and say, hey, can we get some legislation written that gives all of us the right to make health decisions that we feel are in our best interest and not holding anybody else responsible for that. And so I understand there's a fine line. I'm, I, I mean, I, I know this is like, you know, a huge conversation, but it does involve a citizenry that has to be informed. Um, and for those that want to make those decisions, I mean, there are some people who are just going to, you know, we're, they're going to go to the doctor and they'll do, you know, whatever the doctor says. And, and I, I think that doctors generally are not malicious. They generally have their um, patient's interest at heart. And the issue is, is that you have, you can have very different viewpoints on medical conditions good doctors on both different sides can just say, well, I wouldn't do that or I would do that. So because of that, shouldn't we have the freedom to choose what goes or does not go into our bodies? And I think this is a big question. I, I think this is something that we have to look at. And I think it's going to become a bigger issue in, in the future. And at this point, I, I really would just ask you, encourage you to think about that and um, how, how that might look. How does that get worked out? So I just really hope that this information has been helpful to you and that, um, you know, you are encouraged to go study COVID-19 a little bit more. That's probably, that's probably a doctor's worst nightmare. As somebody who said, oh, I've been looking at the internet and, and it is, and I get that that's hard, but I still think there's value in doing your research. I mean, look at what happened with my daughter and I. Had I just listened, my daughter Autumn, had I just listened to what was being said, who knows where we'd be at? I mean, I was just said, they'll find medication and she'll be on medication. And I was just like, no, no. There, I think there's a different option here. And, you know, thankfully we did. Do I think any of the doctors that I saw were... Um, you know, malicious or had bad intent, not at all, but just a different school of thought. And so 
when there's other schools of thought on an issue, I, I think we have to have the freedom to, to make choices for ourselves. But at any rate, so I, I hope this has given you some good information. Um, I think what um, Rachel and I will do is do like a part two follow-up in a month. Okay, so I've just gone off uh, my steroid. What's happening? Um, what did our antibodies look like? Where's Rachel and her story? And so you can look forward to hearing that in a future episode. So just a few final personal thoughts to wrap this all up. I certainly do think that taking supplements is a good idea. I think the evidence is there for vitamin D. I would say make sure it's D3, K2, vitamin C. And as I said, we were also taking zinc as well as a daily vitamin and NAC and a few other things. I think those are all good things and perhaps have kept my children from getting anything worse than what they did have because they were around plenty of people who had tested positive for COVID later. And, and clearly I would recommend, <laughs> I would clearly recommend going to bed at a decent hour and getting good rest. I think getting adequate hours of sleep is very crucially important and staying healthy and I should follow my own advice on this. Next, I want to say a word about Pepsid AC because of course I did research what was being said about it in regards to COVID. Pepsid AC, as most of us know, is typically used to relieve heartburn by reducing stomach acid. And from what I could ascertain is that there were a few small clinical trials where intravenous famitidine, which is the uh, main ingredient in Pepsid AC, um, was given. But in some of those patients, some of them also had hydroxychloroquine. So my thought on this, based on what I read, is that since famitidine is a H2 histamine blocker, perhaps that has an effect on the immune response, and so that could affect this cytokine storm. Again, these are just my thoughts. But here again, you have some doctors saying they don't recommend giving Pepsid AC because there's no real evidence it works, and I'm not sure they meant that that the standard over-the-counter stuff doesn't work because you know the clinical trials were intravenous. Um, given that way, and they thought it might give people a false sense of security. So a note I'd like to make here is that if the doctor who I had the call with would have explained why she was giving me Pepsid AC, that would have been helpful. She had said that had, because it had been 17 days that my symptoms were no longer COVID-related, and she mentioned that it would be allergies or possibly gas or GERD. I've, I've never had that, so I don't know for sure what her reasons even were for having me take it. So without knowing what I know now, at that point in time, I'm, I'm thinking there's no way the symptoms that I've had all these days are from gas or allergies. And with the chest pain, I was, I was definitely going to search out another avenue. The bottom line here, and again, it's just my thought, is that it might be reasonable to have some Pepsid AC on hand and perhaps consider taking it at the first sign of symptoms. I, I don't think there's any evidence that it would be detrimental in any way and possibly could be beneficial. You know, I leave that up to you. Finally, if you're able, Rachel and I both think it's important to check in with your doctor beforehand to see where they land on medical treatment that they would give you in the event that you find yourself where we were. So best wishes to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Be sure to check out the show notes for helpful links to information discussed in today's episode. 
Until next time, may you be a fortifier to the world around you. Bye.